The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about stocks to watch and the week ahead in the markets. My guest is Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and we've got a lot to talk about today. Ben, I don't know about you, but I was so happy on Friday to see a big rally in the major stock indexes. I thought maybe, maybe the worst is over, the selling is done, and the bear is going back into his lair. Well, so much for that idea, right? Well, maybe not. It's actually, well, we can talk about this a bit, but when you look at what's going on today, it actually is kind of, um, I don't know, maybe refreshing. Um Okay, how is how is this refreshing? Well, if you look at the indexes, they're not down that much. They've actually, and maybe this will all change by by the close. But this morning, they really did try to sell off a bit. But the Dow's now pushed its way positive. Um, the S and P is down just a touch, and the Nasdaq is down zero point five percent. But this is much better to see. This kind of like back and forth with not such huge moves. Um, that we've been seeing these two, 3% moves in either direction, but just like some churning, some babbling, trying to figure out where the right price is. Um, this, this is good for the market. Um, it, you think the market's trying to find a bottom? I, I do. Um, I, I think it is. Um, I'm not sure it'll succeed, but I, I think this kind of price action is, is much better. Um, I don't think we want a, like a V-shaped recovery right now. Um, I think that if we get a super fast up move um that's just going to be a, a move that's going to be sold um by people who didn't have a chance to yet um and but but the, the chance to sort of fight things out make make people really look at the fundamentals think about what they want to own and what they want to sell i think that's probably good for the market well i suddenly feel a lot better <laughs> so you wrote a column this weekend about what history can teach us about sell-offs so Give us a little um, sort of synopsis of that. Sure. I mean, what what struck me about the sell-off last week is the stock market, uh, the S&P 500 fell to the point where it was down about 19.6% or so um, from its all-time closing high. Um, and, and, and that level is always interesting to me because there's all these debates about, you know, you get to 19, over 19.5 and some people want to count them as bear markets. But they're not really, at least not by that that definition of 20% or more. But they're also just not a run-of-the-mill sell-off. I was talking to Doug Ramsey over at Luthold Group about this. Um, he just calls them major sell-offs um, because they, they count as something, um, even if they're not like a true bear market. Um, and, we, and we get a lot of these. We've had a lot of them recently. We've had um, one in 2018 uh, when the Fed was raising interest rates and we had a big drop into, uh, into Christmas Eve. Um, we had one again in, in 2011 and we've had some smaller drops, about 15%, 16% in 2015 and things like that. Um, and so what, what I learned by looking at this plus at, uh, all the other down moves we had is that 
you, you get basically, um, you know, we've had five, um, we've had 15 moves of at least 19% or more in, this, in the S&P 500 since 1957. In five of those, we had a lot of pain. Um, that came after that uh, example was you know, 2007, 2008. Um, it, but in others, we actually had some quick bounces. And that's partially because the Fed um, uh, started to ease monetary policy. But then you have these other five where you had a little bit of more downside, but they worked themselves out. And if you look ahead 12 months, most of the time the stock market was higher. So we kind of have these three scenarios. And um, it, what makes this environment so tough is like, guess is is knowing which one we're facing the one thing i i don't think we're going to get or at least i hope not is um is that uh, v-shaped snapbacks i just don't think the fed is going to change its monetary policy enough to um you know this isn't like 1998 when long-term capital management was on the verge of uh, blowing up and the fed did a surprise rate cut and the market took off and it blew up and you know blew into a, a big bubble and then the stock market ended up blowing up again uh, two years later um because it, as doug ramsey put it we've already had our bubble um and i don't think the fed is going to be stepping in anytime soon i think that's pretty much certain so let's say the market has a little more downside even quite a bit more downside on the other hand it's already fallen a lot and there also have to be bargains at hand after four months of selling. Our colleague Jack Howe wrote about some broken IPOs that he likes in this past weekend's issue and a couple of other stocks and funds that he likes in a feature story. But what about you? Where would you bargain hunt now or would you even I, I, I think we always have to be looking for good stocks that have gotten hit uh, too hard. Um, I, I think the mistake that uh, people make in this kind of environment um, is that anything that has fallen a lot uh, is a bargain. Um, and That's a good point. It is it, not. It is not. Um, it, it, this was mentioned, uh, I think we mentioned on our last call, that just because a stock is down doesn't mean, 70% doesn't mean that you want to be buying it. There's a lot going on there. Um, and I was having a conversation with uh, um, an, a strategist named Chris Senek over at Wolf Research. And one of the things he pays a lot of attention to in this environment is things that make earnings look better than they actually are. Um, and one of those is uh, stock-based compensation. Now, those are supposed to be included in earnings based on gap uh, uh, rules. Um, but a lot of the time, companies are reporting numbers uh by you know they're reporting their own operating adjusted non-gap kind of earnings um and they they don't include uh stock compensation um and and so a stock that looks so in, in this environment you have to be very careful um and make to make sure that what you're looking at uh is is actually a a real number um and not one that has been played with because those those uh, non-gap numbers can be perfectly fine when the market is going up. When you get into an environment like this, it can be tough. So that'd be my first thing I'd say is I'd, I'd be careful there. Um, and, and it's not like these companies are doing anything wrong. It's just the market is viewing them differently. And some of these hard hit stocks um, that we've talked about before, um, you know, we talked about internet stocks like Shopify, you know, it would fall into the camp of ones that has a lot of stock-based comp compensation. Um, Palantir is another. Um, and so these are stocks that you, you want to be careful with before saying, aha, they're cheap. Um, but but there are a lot of stocks out there that are, um, that I think do look decent. Um, 
And, you know, I'd be looking for quality stocks, uh, stocks that have very consistent, um, uh, very consistent earning growth um, and um, also have relatively inexpensive valuations. Um, and uh, those kind of stocks, I think, are uh, could do OK in this environment, especially if they follow quite a bit. One could one could screen for them fairly easily. That's right. Um, you know, you just want a company that has steady growth and uh, a decent P.E. relative to others in this sector. That makes sense to me. So do you see any compelling alternatives outside of U.S. stocks, maybe in international markets? Um, I, I think it's hard right now. I mean, this just feels like the kind of market where we're still trying to figure out um, the impact of all these things that are going on, um, whether it's uh, what's happened in China with the, the lockdowns there. I mean, I saw a stat. I mean, the, the, the data out of China has been terrible because of the lockdowns. There's a stat that just kind of blew my mind. There were no cars sold in Shanghai, according to Bloomberg in April. That's amazing. Which is, I mean, it's incredible. It's a huge auto market. Gigantic. Um, and so you have to think that the problems in China are going to have an impact globally just because it is the world's second largest economy. Um, I, don't, I don't think they've reverberated yet. No, I, I don't think so either. And then you have the, the conflict. Uh, um, you had Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine, the war there. And, um, you know, and it, it's awful for the people in, in Ukraine. And it's um, Europe is having to make tough choices about uh, its energy policy and, and trade. And it, it's going to it's very possible that their economy takes a hit, too. Um, I do think coming out of this, I don't know when that will be, is that we are going to find better opportunities overseas than in the U.S. This is just how cycles tend to work. Um, you know, I can still remember um, coming, you know, in, going into the, um, the the financial crisis. Like, U.S. stocks were not very popular, um, even though you had a bull market from, uh, you know, I think the bottom was in 2003 and everyone was talking uh, emerging markets. Um, and now we're at this point uh, and then we had this and then we have the financial crisis and then the U.S. comes out of that and we have this massive bull run based on, on tech stocks, which is just incredible. But it does feel like we're coming into another turn in that cycle where we're going to want to be looking overseas at some point. You have to think with China and the no no cars sold, there's got to be incredible pent up demand to look at it on the bright side. Right. Um, you would. And I think what they need to do is to figure out um, really how to a policy that doesn't just requiring shutting down anytime that there's uh, um, there are new cases spreading. Um, I, I don't know what that policy is. Um, and then they have, um, you know, so many more. I mean, I, I think about what New York went through and you think about how big China's cities are and they're, they're so much larger even than New York. And there's so many of them that, you know, you can't just let these things uh, let the virus run, run rampant. But there also has to be a way to keep the economy from just shutting down almost completely every time that there's an outbreak. Well, it's, it's some of the same issues that we dealt with here writ large over yeah, there. Very much so. So before we get to the news of this week, I wanted to ask you about the bond market and what you make of the retreat in bond yields. The 10-year Treasury yield was pretty comfortably above 3% earlier this month. This morning when I looked, it was down to 2.86, which in bond terms is actually a big move. What do you think the bond market is telling us? 
I just think it's a lot of noise right now. Um, All right, I, so it's not telling us anything. <laughs> no, I, I, I actually, I, I really don't. Um, one of the things that we've seen with the bond market um, recently is just how, I mean, it's just been so volatile um, that these kind of moves where you get uh, a range of, we'll call it uh, 20 basis points to 40 basis points, um, is kind of normal right now. Um, so I, I think more than anything, it's it, it's a pause um, that we had this kind of, um, you know, just an incredible move where I think the yield doubled um, very quickly from the start of the year. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we get if we do end up in a range um, that's bouncing back and forth. Um, I know folks are probably going to look at it and say, oh, it's a sign of a recession or um uh, whatnot, but I think it's really just you got to consolidate after a move like that, and I think that's probably what's going on. Um, though I, I do think it's important to you know watch the yield curve um, and see if it uh, you know it, it actually had steepened quite a bit, which is you know pretty decent news actually. Um, right, because an inverted yield curve often signals a recession. That's right, and it didn't, and we had an inversion, but it wasn't for very long, and it was only in the twos tens. It didn't hit the the three month ten year, um, and, and so it's hard to know what to read into that. So, um, for now, I just think we have to let the the bond market trade and figure out where it's gonna where it wants to go, um, and you know if it can stabilize here, that actually probably is a, a good thing for the market if it bounces between two point eight and three. Um, you know, just any sort of stabilization. Uh, I think you know it's it's often the speed of the move rather than the size of it that is what causes problems. Um, it requires big adjustments to the math that underlies the market, and um, so I think that's just uh, if we if we could just stabilize for a while, we'd be feeling better. If everything could stabilize, I'd feel better. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. We spent about half the call on the market today, but I think it was merited given um, given people's interest in the market and given the wild action in many markets this year. Right now, I want to move on to uh, retail earnings. It's a big week for retailers to report first quarter earnings. We'll also get the latest report on retail sales tomorrow, which will offer important clues to the consumer's health. Why don't we cover that first? What's the consensus forecast for retail sales? And what will you and analysts be looking for from the latest report? Then we'll get to some companies. Well, right now, the, uh, the the retail sales number is supposed to grow 0.9% uh, month over month, um, but just 0.3%, um, um, ex- not including automobiles, including cars. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's a, it, it is, especially without cars, that's a bit of a slowdown. And, and I think what people are starting to worry about is that um, inflation is starting to eat into what um, consumers are spending on. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was reading a Deutsche Bank note and they were talking about, you know, you're buying less for more. And they see this shift starting to happen from goods over to services. And that's going to very possibly show up in uh, in retail sales. And um it, it, it might uh, it, it might be a kind of a, a scary thing if it does. I don't think anyone's expecting a big uh, um, jump in 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 the number um, that the risk. I think most people think the risk is to the downside to the point that uh, Eddie Ardemi was saying that he thinks the uh, the print tomorrow could um, 
could cause some of those recession recession fears to come to come back again. Um, but but I know that the the focus really is on the consumer is how much spending does a consumer have have left? You know, they shoppers had so much. Uh, no money um, because uh, with the pandemic, uh, with all those checks from the government, um, and, and and wages have been going up, but so has inflation. And so the worry is that you know they're just not going to be spending as much, and that's what people are looking for in the retail earnings as well. Trevor goes along with some of the other fears we have. Very much so. So now let's move on to companies reporting this week. Before we do, I'll remind listeners, we're going to take questions at the end of the call. So let us know what's on your minds. Um, big box retailers will be reporting. I'm talking about Walmart and Target. Amazon, which I call the biggest box virtual retailer, had a weak quarter, as did many other e-commerce companies. And I think everybody wants to know, is the softness going to hit the brick and mortar giants too? Give us a preview of Walmart and Target results. Well, they're, they're interesting because um, you know they're really they, they get grouped together so much, but um, right now they're behaving very differently. Um, so over the last three months, Walmart has gained ten percent. Um, the Target has dropped six point two percent, and um, Walmart is um, at uh, is trading at twenty one point four times earnings, and that's down just a touch from the start of the year. Um, where it was 21.6 times earnings. So it's, its PE multiple has barely budged, um, even though the rest of the market has seen its multiple fall from around 21 to 17. Um, but Target's a lot cheaper there as well. It's at about 14 and a half times. Um, so I, I was reading uh, John Zolidis, who has a firm called Quovatis Capital, um, and he's actually a little bit worried about Walmart. Um, he notes that it's going to benefit from inflation. Um, you're going to have people going there looking for better deals on food uh, and things like that. But at the same time, because food is getting more expensive, they might be spending less on other things, on the discretionary stuff that actually has the higher margins for Walmart. And if, if that's the case, you could see an increase in revenue. You can see an increase in, in the number of people shopping there, but it could actually hurt profitability a bit. And he worries that with the multiple as high as it is, that you might not, the market might not respond to that very well. Um, it, it has been an outperformer that uh, I, I think we've seen a lot that any outperformer that hasn't been able to live up to the expectations built into it have been hit really hard. The one that comes to my to mind for me was uh, O'Reilly Auto, um, which had been just ripping, was at a 52-week high, I believe, came out with earnings and dropped uh, more than 10% uh, after the after the print. Um, and it was because the numbers were terrible. They just couldn't hit those expectations. Um, Sensitive market like that. Very much so. And, and he likes Target more just because he thinks that uh, – he thinks people are um, that that investors look at, think that Walmart is too recession proof, and they look at Target and don't realize that it might be more resilient to a slowdown than um, than, than the market expects. And so he's actually pretty excited uh, just with the pullback we've had in Target. He thinks the numbers there will be pretty decent. Well, I'm certainly helping second quarter numbers because I spent a lot of money there yesterday. <laughs> So how about Home Depot? We'll also hear from them. The company is a proxy in many ways for the housing market. What is Wall Street expecting from the latest earnings report? No, they're expecting a beat. Um, you know, you read, the, they're optimistic on the current quarter. Um, the problem comes um, really in, in two ways. One is they're worried about 
the trajectory of um, sales. Um, so what happened from February to March or March to April and um, what that will say about the rest of the year. But then there also, um, and, and I thought this was a great quote from Gordon Haskett analyst, Chuck Ron. He said, they're being held hostage to rates and demand concerns. And I, I think that's very true. You know, as um, rates go up, mortgages, uh, mortgage rates have gone up and um, housing prices have, have gone up. Um, and people are really concerned that uh, there's going to be less spending at uh, Home Depot and um, and, and the Lowe's even. Um, and that uh, e even if the, the, the stocks are kind of priced for that because they have been beaten up quite a bit, um, they could still be stuck trading off of those forces for a while before they get uh, that bounce back. So people do seem pretty cautious about uh, about Home Depot heading into the print. We'll see what happens. They're reporting tomorrow. So before we leave the topic of retail, I want to talk about off-price leaders, Ross Stores and TJX, which is the parent of TJ Maxx. They're also reporting this week. And I always find this a fascinating industry because the off-price chains prosper from other retailers' misery, which means that when full-price stores have to offload unsold merchandise, it often winds up at Ross and TJ Maxx. What's the outlook this time around? Well, this has been such an interesting time for these stocks. I mean, Barron's has a long history of loving the off-price retailers, and for good reason. They've done quite well, but the pandemic really shook things up because with the supply chain problems, there there aren't this, this glut of stuff that other retailers have to get rid of. Um, and, and so you don't get the same kind of... Um, yeah, the same the same kind of good showing up when you go for that that kind of treasure hunt that uh, people talk about when they think of uh, TJ Maxx or, or, or Ross stores that uh, they're you know they're um, they're going there and they're just not finding the, the the goods they want and you know the companies are being hurt by that they're being hurt by margins um, their margins are being hurt um, and it, it's one where. It depends who you talk to. Um, over the analysts over at Guggenheim, they they see some problems during the first half of the year, but they do see the inventory issues going away during the second half of the year. Um, and they might be able to, um, they'll have more to sell. They might be able to raise their prices a bit um, and do a better, and, and not just have to buy what's out there just because they need to have merchandise, but actually be able to choose what they want. Um, but that's going to be a second half kind of story. So it could be a little messy for, for these stocks uh, this quarter and perhaps next as well. All right. I want to go to some listener questions and then we'll come back to a few more topics that you and I are interested in that we talked about earlier today. So there are two questions from last week that came in right at the end and I think we saved them and they're still relevant. I want to pose them. The first one has to do with supply chain issues and their impact on stocks. We all know the situation is bad. Chinese electric vehicle companies, for instance, are reporting a 50% decline month over month. We're about to get an additional blow from China. How are we factoring in supply chain issues when we look at the market, are we underestimating the impact, overestimating it? What do you think? Um, I actually think the market probably has that issue, uh, understands it pretty well. Um, that it, it, it has been, it's been a problem for so long 
that uh, for the most part, you, you still hear companies talking about it. Um, and, and I think a lot of that is priced in. There have actually been a few companies, and unfortunately I'm blocking out the names now, but uh, that have actually talked about supply chains getting better for them. But I think for the most part, these are still issues. I, I'm not sure what's happening in China. It, it, I, I'm worried just more about the, the lack of growth in China than I am the supply chain chains at this point. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, companies have started to be able to, you know, shift um, production a little bit, um, and they're learning. They've learned how to manage this. Um, I'm, as painful as the, the lockdowns are, um, I'm not sure they how much of a surprise they are. Um, and, and so, it's a question more of managing it than anything else. Okay, so. Moving on, the next question has to do with semiconductor stocks. Would you recommend buying them on the dip right now? Ah, that is a very good question. Um, first Many people say, are wondering that, in fact. Yeah, you know, I, I am too. I mean, I, I, I look at the chart for the, uh, the iShares Semiconductor ETF, uh, as I always do whenever I'm looking at something. I just want to see what it's been doing. And they've gotten beaten up, and they've actually fallen to a level that is, you know, looks like on the chart that it's it's support and it's a support level going back to 2021-ish. Um, so going back quite a bit. And where um, is it now? Over a year. Um, so, you know, it's, well, that, that's where it's right at that support level, just okay. a little oh, bit above it. it. So it bounced, it, it dropped that level, has bounced a little bit. Um, but I, I also worry just that what we're seeing in so, so much of the weakness, it, it seems to be in, uh, in tech right now, um, and they use a lot of the, the semis. Um, a lot of tech companies use semis, and so that weakness could come come through. Um, I, I worry about uh, Bitcoin um, and, and cryptos. If there's real big problems there, they use a lot of uh, chips. Um, so I, I do think that uh, people forget how cyclical um, and economically sensitive semiconductors are. Um, and so it goes back to this idea, are we having just a growth scare and the economy will be able to get through this period or are we heading into a recession? If it's a recession, I think there's more downside. If there is, if it's a growth scare, this is actually an interesting place to buy. Um, one of the things that uh, Eric Sabitz, who's our tech columnist, he wrote about this weekend, and they're not quite chip stocks per se, because they're more in the memory space, but uh, he was writing about Western Digital and, and Micron and just how cheap both these stocks are and how they're actually looking well positioned uh, in this market and, and, and could be worth buying right now. I think the long-term case for semiconductors is clearly bullish, but yes. as you say, it's a very cyclical business. It is. And they're also, you have to worry about um, how much spending they're going to have to do in, in the near term. Um, you know, if uh, they're, they're building uh, fabs in the U S uh, trying to expand um, for, for greater demand. Um, it, you know, th th those are costs that you have now, but you don't get the, the profits from them until later. And that can eat into margins as well. But I, I would look for a good entry point in the sector, though, based, Very on, much the long, so. based on the long-term forecast. So Neil asks about overhead resistance. Does it play a role in dictating the dynamics of the NASDAQ's recovery? And and I think what he's really referring to is sort of the technical setup of the market. Right. So give us a sense of what you see. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think uh, the, the problem with this market is that it's clearly in a downtrend um, and it's in, in the NASDAQ more than any other part. I mean, the NASDAQ's just been taking a huge hit and it keeps breaking through every uh, support level. 
um, that it's had. And each of those support levels really does uh, look like it's become a, uh, a resistance level on the way down. So when it broke, um, it wasn't actually even that long ago, um, you know, it broke uh, 13,000 um, and it bounced right back up into 13,000. But all of a sudden that level that had been kind of a support place for it became resistance, it couldn't, and it dropped. And now it's back below 12,000. Um, and it's trying to rally into that 12,000. Is it gonna be able to break through? But it's like right now, the technicals are pretty, ug so ugly. They're very ugly and they're so ugly that people are actually starting to look at things like a you know, 200 week moving average um, to find where the support is that uh, can really, um, uh, that this market can really find, um, find a bottom at, um, you know, the place where if we're still in a secular bull market, forget the total 20% kind of thing. But if the market is still um, in this uh, upward trajectory with a lot of volatility right now, um, that that's where it needs to hold. And so that's kind of what's happening with uh, the market at this point is that you have these short-term resistance points um, that are, are, are very powerful right now. Um, um, and at the same time, that people are starting to look for these these very long term support levels, um, hoping that they hold. Let's hope. So good, good question, good answer. We have a um, economic, maybe a political question from Howard. What can the federal government do to decrease inflation? President Biden has said that is one of his top priorities. Uh, um, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I mean, I think. Part of this is that there, there, there was just too much money um, floating around, and and I don't want to criticize the Fed or the or the federal government for that matter for doing what they did um, during the uh, COVID uh, crisis, um, because any of us, you know, we can all think back to that and look at like everyone was starting to price the bond um, bonds companies going out of business um you know people losing their jobs and just the, the, the right amazing. there was a legitimate fear for a while that the yeah, economy it, would it, crash right it was a, it was going and not just crash but be a major catastrophe um mm -hmm. and they acted quickly and strongly to make sure that didn't happen but they also waited too long to um um to, uh, to to keep it from overheating. And we know that again, but that's hindsight. Um, right, unfortunately, right. there weren't a lot of people who were saying that um, at least uh, at least early on. Um, so I, I'm not sure there's much that the federal government can, can do except let the Fed try to do what it's doing, which is let's try to slow things down. Um, right, raise and, interest rates and drain liquidity from the market. That's right. And even and some of it is even in just, um, I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting to see the Fed basically trying to tell companies, you know, don't go all out trying to hire everybody for every, hiring people for every single opening that you have at any cost. Um, you know, th these are the things that scare the Fed is that, uh, you know, if companies are out there and they're just, uh, you know, you get this uh, wave spiral. Um, that's when inflation gets really, really bad. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the Fed just has to get that message across to, to companies that uh, it will, you know, it will do what it needs to, to to slow things down. I'm not sure the Fed should be dictating companies' hiring policies, however. <laughs> so let's go back to one topic um, I wanted to talk about. There is a stock that has gone up this year 
and it is actually up today. The stock is Deer. It trades for $375. It pays a $4.20 dividend for a yield of 1.1%. It's reporting earnings this week. And I think we should end on a happy note. How and why is Deer beating the odds this year? Um, it's beating the odds because its uh, customers are beating the odds, and with uh, it, it builds tractors. Um, and uh, you know, with with food prices soaring the way that they are, uh, farmers are finally. Um, I don't want to say they're flush, but they're able to. Uh, they hadn't um, replaced tractors and things for a very long time, and uh, they, they, they're doing that now. So with uh, farmers having money, uh, deer is getting some of that money, um, and. You know that's it, it's it, they're also doing some pretty great things as a company. You know they're really trying to um, they're they're trying to position themselves almost as a tech company with their 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 tractors. The way that they're connected with, with big data, um, providing information to farmers to make them even more efficient. Um, I think the the big worry as with everything right now um, is that there had been maybe too much growth. Uh, some of it was pulled pulled forward. And we're seeing some signs that that's the case, that uh, there's a Japanese tractor maker called uh, Kubota, I think is how it's pronounced. Yes. Uh, and, and last week, you know, they they, they had some uh, um, not great earnings. Um, you also had the Manitowoc, uh, which makes cranes. They've talked about some softness there uh, in April. Um, and, and so I think with, as with everything, you have to be cautious. What's interesting is about deer is that even though it is up quite a bit, um, this year, it has pulled back somewhat. Um, and so I think that actually positions it pretty decently into a Friday's print. All right. We'll be watching Friday for deer's earnings and more. Thank you, Ben. Good call today. Lots of, lots of important ground covered. I appreciate it. And thank you thank to you our Lord. listeners. You bet. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Barron's Associate Editor for Technology, Eric Sabitz, will speak with Kelly Rodriguez, CEO of Forge Global, about the state, excuse me, about the state of the venture capital market. Sounds like an interesting call. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in today. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.